Hello and welcome to another episode of You in the Ring, your weekly roundup of campus news and events. I'm your host, Hugo Wong. Today on the show, assistance dogs are crucial in helping some people live life to the fullest, but they haven't required licenses until this year when a provincial law uh, is going to come into effect that's supposed to combat people getting fake service dog jackets in order to take advantage of benefits that they don't need. But this is causing problems for some people, including one UVic student, Georgia Pike, and her dog Granger will join us later in the studio. Marijuana legalization is a huge issue for all levels of government. Just last Friday, Victoria introduced new bylaws regulating marijuana dispensaries in the city, banning ATMs and consumption on site. There is a task force working to provide recommendations to the Liberal government on what they think marijuana legalization should look like. UVic professor and task force member Dr. Susan Boyd will have more on that. And finally, the uh, UVic United Way campaign kicks off this Thursday, which hopes to raise $275,000 to be distributed among local charities and those in need. UVic campaign chair Jim Forbes will tell us about what to expect from the campaign. But first... There are over 200 clubs on campus, according to the UVSS, but in the past... Some have proven to be more controversial than others. We've got Miles Sauer, Editor-in-Chief at The Martlet, who joins us in studio to tell us more. Hey, Miles. Hi, Hugo. Uh, so this is a discussion that came out of last week's UVSS board meeting. We didn't really have a get, a, get a chance to talk too much about it. Uh, so here, we're looking a bit closer at that now. Give us some background on the two clubs that have been under some scrutiny over the summer and around now. Sure. Well, the first one, if people were reading the Martlet over the summer, we reported on a story, uh, on a club, I should say, called the University Bible Fellowship. And they're an established club. They're not new. And what happened was we were kind of tipped off by the Nexus, uh, Camosun College's student newspaper. And they said, hey, we were told to kind of look into this club that was also down at Camosun, the Bible Fellowship. And as soon as the Nexus started investigating, um, the club kind of disappeared. They contacted the student society and said, we revoke our club status. We're being harassed by the newspaper. Uh, we're out of here. <laughs> and so the editor reached out to the Martlet and said, hey, this club's active on your campus as well. Maybe you should look into it. Um, but basically what happened, what they've been kind of accused of is, uh, and they have chapters all over the place. They're an international organization. Um, they have a history of kind of being accused of uh, kind of cult-like behavior sort of um there's been accusations that they kind of ostracize their members when they bring them in they kind of bring uh exchange students into the club with promises of like community and that kind of thing um very focused on uh prayer and like bible study and that kind of stuff but uh one of the sources that we spoke to for this story brian karcher i think was his name was he wrote four books about his experience in the University Bible Fellowship. He was actually put through an arranged marriage through the club, and he spoke with us. He was the one who originally tipped off Camosun, or the Nexus, and said, hey, you should look into this. And yeah, he did not mince words. He said the University Bible Fellowship um, is very much a cult. They're very much worth being concerned about. And so we looked into it. Mm -hmm. And has the University Bible Fellowship responded to these well, yeah, there's the that's the issue. They we couldn't really we couldn't get in touch with them when we tried writing this story over the summer. They 
uh, didn't answer emails. They didn't um, answer phone calls. We actually went to the address where the chapter or leader was supposed to reside, and we didn't find him. Hmm. But we still found other instances at other campuses around Canada and even the States where this kind of thing has come up. And so we kind of ran the story with that in mind, being like, nothing necessarily happening here as far as we know, but they have ties to an organization that's done things elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And how does how is this separate from the other club that was a subject of some debate at the last UVSS board meeting? So that was the University Christian Ministries, and uh, that was kind of a similar thing. They were an established club. They've been here for a few years, as far as I know. And when it came to ratify them at the last board meeting last week, um, Alexis Masur, I think their name is, uh, they're the new UVic Pride rep on the board. Mm -hmm. They raised some concerns that uh, in their experience at other universities, the Christian Ministries has been sort of homophobic, even transphobic. uh, And they basically just raised a lot of concerns around some of the mandate of the club and said that ratifying them here on campus would be harmful, I guess, to marginalized communities. Um, And that kicked off about, it felt like close to an hour of debate where the board was split between, you know, letting the club be and ratifying them. And then any complaints that could come up would go to equity and human rights Mm -hmm. or, you know, whether or not the board should step in and say, no, we can't have this club. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of in line with prior controversies surrounding, uh, clubs like Youth Protecting Youth or, exactly. the, or the Catholic Students Association. What can you say about the, the tension about you know, protecting students from harm or allowing these clubs uh, funding for issues of uh, freedom of belief, freedom of speech? Uh, well, I mean, like you said, it's, it's the exact same issue as Youth Protecting Youth, and it, and it came up multiple times at that board meeting. Um, I... Personally, I see both sides. I think you have to go as far as you can to ensure that these clubs aren't um, harming people as it may. Uh, But you do also kind of have to respect that clubs will have different beliefs. Like we have a communist club. We have a cap, I don't know if we have a capitalist club, but like we have clubs for all the different political parties. So I mean, Mm -hmm. to... A certain extent you have to be able to foster those different kind of groups and beliefs but I guess in instances yeah yeah for, for one reason or another it really does seem like you know there are uh, I mean there are other uh, clubs that are you know more religious in nature but sure. these ones in particular do seem to to get a lot of that attention yeah they always seem to and uh, some one of somebody even a member of the club, the Christian Ministries, actually reached out to us last week just saying, hey, I saw some chatter because I sent out a pitch and just mm-hmm. asked if anybody wanted to write about it. And they said, oh, I'm a member of the club and I've never heard about these things. We're, we're not like this at all, so I'm not really sure where this is coming from. And I just kind of had to direct them to our report on the board meeting. And I haven't really heard back since, but... Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, why do you think that, say, at the last board meeting, uh, one of these clubs got a lot of attention on a lot of time in the, in, uh, in debate, and the other one didn't? I wish I had an answer. I was there prepared for it to happen because 
the University of Christian Ministries was part of one motion uh, to ratify clubs with funding, and the University Bible Fellowship was part of the next motion to ratify clubs without. And so after this huge debate, I was thinking, you know, this is going to all come up again when the University Bible Fellowship is, in, is up for discussion, and there was nothing. And a few other board members who were at the club's council meeting the week prior to that, they even said to me, I was surprised that nobody brought that up. I think Emma Kanakin, who was chairing the board, when she, asked, <laughs> when she asked the board, is there any discussion on this motion, the one including the Bible Fellowship, and nobody said anything, I think she was a little surprised, and I think she kind of let it hang there just to give somebody an opportunity to say something, and nobody did. So I'm really not sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and sort of moving on from that, uh, last week there were two resignations that happened. Uh, any word on you know how the new people are, are settling in? Uh, I haven't really uh, checked in with Alicia Flipsy yet in her new position. I'm sure she's doing a great job. I thought there'd be a board meeting last night, but there was a typo and there wasn't. Um, mm -hmm. But if last week's meeting was anything to go by, I think the new Pride Rep Alexis will do a really good job kind of speaking up for issues. They, mm -hmm. they uh, for, for their first meeting, they really, you know, stuck their neck out and really held their own mm -hmm. and spoke up. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is another meeting happening this afternoon, but that's not a UVSS meeting. That's a UVic Board of Governors meeting. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, and uh, what can people expect from from that? Uh, oh, I don't really know. I was skimming through the agenda yesterday. They tend to be pretty, pretty bulky. Bulky, dry, I don't know, uh, kind of inaccessible. Yeah, to, to provide some context, uh, before each UVic Board of Governors meeting, there is uh, what's known as an open docket that's, relief, that's released. That's a, a huge ream of, of PDF documents uh, that provides some background information about uh, the topics that are that are discussed in the open meeting. Uh, most of these are discussed uh, behind closed doors, but then in the open meeting, they make uh, they make their final decisions. Now, uh, as part of that, you know, big ream of documents, it seems like UVic is planning uh, some more construction over the next few years. Um, any uh, anything on that? Uh, I think when you and I were talking about it yesterday, you seemed to be far more in the know than I did. I, it probably warrants a closer look before I oh, get it's, into Oh, it's afternoon. just, <laughs> yeah, there, there's, a, there's a strange pleasure that comes from, you know, reading these huge reams of documents. So basically, um, I guess uh, a few things, and, and there, are, there are more than a few. Uh, they're going to approve an, an MA in public history, but they're going to do it within the existing MA history stream. They didn't want to go through the government approval process for a whole new program but that means that they're not expanding the program so keeping it to to 25 spots and they're also looking to do something with uh, a patch of land that they own in uh, in queenswood uh they're considering moving ocean networks canada uh, to that region and there was a, a consultation meeting with the neighborhood of uh i guess it was last week i think um but i don't know what's i don't know what's come out of that maybe you should go to the meeting today you can come with me. I think I have a thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Miles, thanks a lot for joining us today. No problem. Thanks, Hugo. Miles is the editor-in-chief at The Martlet. 
And uh, now we have a song. Let's go over some uh, events for this week. Tomorrow night, join the discussion on how to prevent sexualized violence on campus and beyond as a community. This event features Farah Khan, who started talking about sexual violence at the age of 16 and hasn't stopped since. She's a nationally recognized counselor, educator, and uh, artist with over 16 years of experience. She co-created initiatives, uh, including the hashtags Use the Right Words and We Believe Survivors, and the event is happening tomorrow night, September 28th at 6.30 at the Farquhar Auditorium. The event is free for UVic students if they have their student ID, but please get your ticket at the UVic ticket booth. $10 in advance and $15 at the door for non-students. Creation, honoring, and preservation of Pacific Northwest Indigenous Poles slash monumental wood carvings is uh, this year's theme for the He West First Nations Artist Forum. Indigenous poles and monumental wood carvings that have been installed throughout the region elicit huge public interest in traditions, practices, and meanings. But there's also a struggle to best and most respectfully commission, preserve, and honor these monuments rife with narrative and cultural significance. The event will feature a panel discussion moderated by Dr. Andrea Walsh, an associate professor at the UVic Department of Anthropology. The artist panel will include Doug LaFortune, Luann Neal, Randy Cook, and Yelmer Wenstaub, uh, featuring a brief presentation on the preservation of poles and monumental carvings. It's happening Friday, September 30th from 6.30 till 9.30 at the UVic Legacy Gallery downtown, and that's on 630 Yates Street. And uh, finally, Breaking Through Barriers, Perspectives from Four Women Economists. Join the UVic Women in Economics Affinity Group for an exciting evening of networking and discussion as they explore ways to engage, mentor, and support uh, women economists in Canada. The event will feature a special panel of speakers who will discuss the challenges they have faced and overcome as women in the economics field. After the panel, enjoy complimentary appetizers and drinks while you network during the breakout sessions and discuss how mentorship can play a role in support the next generation of women economists. It's happening at the University Club from 5.30 to 8 on Thursday, September 29th. And although this event is focused on women, men are also welcome to join. And uh, now... A new BC law that came to effect in January is causing issues for visually impaired uh, UVic student. Georgia Pike is in her third year at UVic and uses a guide dog to get around. Her dog, Granger, is an adorable black lab who has his own Facebook page. Georgia and Granger join me in the studio this morning to talk about accessibility. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, how long has Granger been your guide dog? I got Granger in July of 2015. Uh, and how's that been? He has made the world of difference for me. He has improved my mobility significantly. And socially, he has been great because everybody loves dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you tell me a little bit about what that new law for guide dogs stipulates? The new law stipulates that anyone with a service dog, so it doesn't have to be a guide dog, um, has to present ID upon entering into any public place if the person mm -hmm. asks. So if I went into the grocery store and was going into the 
meat aisle, say, and the meat person said, can I see your ID? I would have to show this random worker that I uh, do, in fact, have a real service dog. Mm -hmm. And uh, why is that a problem for you? It's really difficult for me because when I wake up every morning, I wake up with the full knowledge that I have a disability. And for me to have to prove it day in and day out to people who don't know me is exhausting and it's very emotionally debilitating. Is that happen has that something is that something that's happened to you like already? Yes, it's happened it's happened several times. There's been a lot of publicity over this new law and how it's supposed to crack down on fake service dogs, which are supposedly a problem. And so there have been quite a few incidents. Mm -hmm. And uh, what have you been doing sort of in response to this? I usually try and think of something witty to say, but most of the time it uh, does come out in just me showing the ID and getting uh, very worked up about it, which is not a very productive way of dealing with things. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm I'm working on trying different things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what kind of message do you think that a law like this sends to uh, visually impaired persons? I think the law has focused from protecting people with service dogs in general to criminalizing those who are breaking the law. And so I think the message of the law is saying that your uh, your rights are lesser than everyone else in Canada because we are the only people who have to present ID um, at any given moment during our day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and do you want to see the law changed or uh, rescinded? And, and there, there are some with this is just a section within the law. The there are parts with of the law that are actually really great and have improved accessibility for things like getting housing if you have a service dog. But I would love to see this part, uh, the identification part, revised because it is discriminatory in that we are the only population who has to do this. And um, I would love to see a model like the one in the U.S in the United States adopted. And this is where anyone who has a service dog in the United States, it's illegal for anyone to ask them if they, uh, for ID, and that's to preserve their dignity. And um, anyone, the, the workers themselves are protected as well in that they can kick someone out who has a service dog who's misbehaving. So it focuses more on the behavior of the dog and not so much the creditation of the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and what made you set up a Facebook page for Granger? I thought it would be cool to have everything in the point of view of Granger. And obviously I'm biased because <laughs> I'm writing it for him. He mm-hmm. doesn't have any thumbs. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I feel like people, when whenever they meet Granger, they're really curious about how he works and how I get around. And so I feel like uh, it's the right way to educate people because everyone's on Facebook. 
Mm-hmm. And what what do you want people to to learn about guide dogs, or uh, what what do you want them to to take away from the page that you've set up? I think the key part that I want people to learn is that Granger is a very good friend to me and a great companion, and he is also my eyes. So just like glasses allows people to see, he allows me to see and to get around. And without him, I don't go anywhere. So I think... I think that's a really critical part that people should understand. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have you encountered any accessibility issues as a UVic student? I have encountered just a small, um, you know, everybody, everybody is very good in terms of Granger um, being a service dog and they know that and so they've been really good at letting him into everywhere. Um, I have encountered, it It was difficult. I tried taking a biology class um, and in this biology class, there, there was a lab and I felt very useful or useless in the lab because um, a sighted person was doing everything for me. So I found that difficult and mm. there, I couldn't really figure out any other way to do it. There was no um, technology that spoke to you, for example. So mm. I couldn't actually do things on my own, which I found very frustrating and ended up dropping the class. Um, and so that that was the main that's the main issue with accessibility that i've had on campus and uh, do you have any ideas on you know how to make uvic more inclusive for visually impaired people i think uvic is a very inclusive place in general in that it has a lot of different clubs for uh, people with disabilities and it provides a safe environment for people to disclose that they have a disability. I, I, I would just say that to educate people um, because the majority of the student population is great and to keep educating people that people with disabilities are thriving on campus and just to let people know that. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to leave it there. Georgia, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Georgia Pike is a student at UVic. She was speaking to me about a law requiring ID for uh, guide dogs, and her dog Granger also joined us in studio. And now, uh, the City of Victoria's medical cannabis uh, business regulations are now in effect. So under the new bylaw, all retail businesses where medical cannabis is sold or provided to a person who visits the premises is considered a storefront cannabis retailer. All storefront cannabis retailers are now required to be rezoned for this use and to obtain a business license. So that means it's open season for cannabis vendors here in the city. Uh, Meanwhile, Canada moves towards regulation of marijuana. Uh, Susan Boyd is a distinguished professor at the UVic Department of Human and Social Development. She sits on the nine-member federal task force for legalizing marijuana. She joins me on the phone today. Hello. How you go? Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, so for those who aren't familiar with the regulatory environment that we have right now, can you give us a quick overview? Yes, right now, cannabis is, you know, federally um, a restricted drug. It's in Schedule Two, and so it's illegal to possess, 
or um, produce or sell or exchange the the plant. Um, we also have a legal medical cannabis program, a federal program in Canada, where we allow authorized producers to grow and sell um, cannabis for medical purposes, and they go through a, a quite a lengthy process to um, become authorized and licensed, and they can sell to uh, patients who have been um, applied for and um, received permission to use cannabis for medical purposes. And those licensed producers that we have, we have about 35 of them across Canada now. They, um, you're not allowed to, um, the patient is not allowed to come onto the premises. It's all mail order mm-hmm. to the patient. And so that's quite different than the um, medical cannabis dispensaries that you are seeing in Victoria or Vancouver, Toronto, that have popped up over the last couple of years where people come on to the the actual, you know, premises of the dispensary and they can see the product and talk to people about the product. That's not to say that the um, many of the uh, licensed producers in Canada have a, a phone service where you can call and discuss with somebody about the products that they have available. Mm-hmm. And is it fair to say that in a city like Victoria, where there are so many uh, dispensaries, that the mail order service uh, isn't really popular here, but might be in, say, other parts of the country? Yeah, I think um, when we talk about sort of distribution, especially of medical cannabis, that would be important to have you know, a number of different ways to do that. For some people... Um, receiving their medicine through the mail would be ideal. They might live in a rural area of Canada, or they might be living somewhere where there aren't storefront dispensaries. Um, And so then that would be essential for them to have mail order. For other places Mm -hmm. like Victoria or uh, Vancouver, the dispensaries emerge out of what was seen as a failure of the federal medical cannabis program. Um, And they seem to serve a need for consumers. And so I think an ideal uh, regulatory system would have a combination of different ways that people can access um, cannabis. Mm-hmm. And you're working on that right now in the in the task force, is that right? Where are you in that stage? Yeah, I am on the task force. I'm a member on the uh, task force. There's a chair, Emma McClellan co-chair, Dr. Mark Ware, and then seven other task force members, including myself. And we're at the place right now where over the summer, there were 60 days over the summer where Canadians could submit um, online, you know, letters to the task force about their views about cannabis and legal regulation and legalization. And so maybe I should make clear that the task force mandate um, is to create or give advice uh, on the design of a new framework that would legalize and regulate cannabis. So it's not about whether we will legalize and regulate it. That's already confirmed. It's what that legal um, model will look like and what kind of legal regulation that we would have in Canada, because it could be all over the map. We can see that in Colorado and Washington, they have a different 
legal regulatory system. Uruguay has a different um, legal regulatory system. Mm-hmm. And so Canada has the option of creating the one that would fit best with our public health and human rights concerns. Um, and so all of the submissions are in now. There are almost 30,000 submissions. Most of those were by individuals, and about 500 were submissions by organizations. So they submitted reports and articles and other information, um, as well as many individuals did the same. So we have all of that information now. And um, What did you hear from, com- from people? Um, Right now, I can't really say definitively what people are saying. Um, most of the submissions were very much in favor of creating a legal regulatory system. So that's very positive, and it's in line with what um, we've seen Canadians say over the years. Mm-hmm. And right now, we're analyzing and coding that material, and the task force is not doing that. It would be completely impossible for eight people to do mm-hmm. that. And the period of time that we have, there was a company that was hired by the government to do the coding um, on the um, on the submissions, and so we'll have all of that information soon. And our task is to create a report back to the three ministries: uh, the Minister of Justice, the Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness, and the Minister of Health. Um, we're the report will go to them, and we'll provide them with the advice on the design of the new framework. And uh, is the advice that so yes, we've been? Excuse me. Uh, sorry, uh, is the advice that you you provide to the ministries uh, is it is it uh, a binding? No, it's not. So, uh, if you may recall that um, a group, is, a federal group, was put together for the assisted dying, um, and they mm-hmm. that group wrote a a report, but. The recommendations um, in the report were not fully taken up by the federal government. So the same could happen here. You know, there's no way to know for sure what we recommend will be taken up by the federal government. Mm-hmm. Are you but we can just do our best, you know, to sort of provide what we feel is the best model to be adopted and give the rationale why that is. And I should say, too, that not only were there these almost 30,000 submissions, but that since uh, July, the task force has met with the provinces. They've had round tables um, in almost each province, or I think in each province, um, meeting with experts in the field. So that would be public health, law enforcement, medical cannabis, um, or um, um, producers, youth groups, indigenous mm-hmm. groups. Uh, in order to, you know, inform ourselves about the issues um, throughout Canada, because it's quite diverse, Canada, in relation to the issues and the issues of concern. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you have an idea of what legalization would look like as far as uh, who has access and uh, the mechanisms that would be used to sell it? Well, the task force is trying to come up with at this point. And when mm-hmm. I say trying to come up with it, it's, it's, you know, what we're doing is reading articles and reports and the submissions from organizations and the individuals to get an idea of what Canadians would like as well. 
And then moving from that, we've also visited um, Washington State and met with government there and producers and um, storefront um, dispensaries. We went to Colorado as well. We'll be speaking with Uruguay, you know, trying to get an idea of what already exists because we don't have to sort of recreate from the ground up. But we do need to create something that fits with Canadian law and with Canadian concerns, public health concerns. I mean, I would assume that a Canadian model might look different than a U.S. state model because we have a public health system that is quite different. Um, and our legislation would be federal. Mm-hmm. And in the United States, cannabis is still illegal um, through federal law. Um, the states, the four states in the District of Columbia that have, um, have voted to legalize cannabis, that's a separate concern. And there's still contention between federal and state rights there around cannabis. Well, in Canada, we don't have those issues, which is you know, beneficial to us. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you think about cities that are moving ahead with regulating dispensaries uh, before any federal laws have been been passed? Yeah, I think this was inevitable. I mean, it was going on even before um, the federal government announced that they would move ahead with their, you know, campaign promise to legalize and regulate cannabis. So this phenomena um, was in existence already, and municipalities like Victoria and Vancouver, you know, have been trying to come up with ways that they could regulate them, you know, through bylaws and zoning and licensing, um, so that there was some oversight over, you know, in relation to the dispensaries. Mm-hmm. I can't say what will happen um, throughout the rest of Canada, but I think it's indicative of the fact that Canadians do want to see a legal regulatory model established mm-hmm. here in Canada. And different. we can see, though, that different municipalities are, are responding to the dispensaries in very different fashions. Let's say in Toronto, they've been pretty heavy-handed um, closing the dispensaries down. Mm-hmm. And uh, here in Victoria and in Vancouver, the municipalities are making more of an effort to work with them and to establish, you know, regulatory guidelines for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've written work in the past which has exam- examined attitudes towards uh, cannabis and how negative opinions about it were, you know, generally not reflective of, of reality. Where are you on the issue personally? Are, are you in favor of legalizing? And, and how, if so, what would be your ideal? Yeah, I mean, I'm on the public record for 20 years saying that I think uh, legal regulation of currently illegal drugs should occur. So not only cannabis, but I'm in favor of um, legally regulating um, other drugs for personal use. And we're right in the middle of a you know fentanyl overdose death crisis, and I think that we should contemplate and look at other models of regulation um, to reduce harm to individuals and to families and society. And on the task force, I would say that, you know, I'm drawing from conclusions in my own research that I've conducted over 20 years, but also looking at the huge field of research that already exists in relation to drug policy and the harms of drug policy um, and trying to balance that with creating a public health and human rights um, framework. 
to legally regulate uh, currently criminalized drugs. So, you know, if you ask if, if it was my world, what would I have, you know, um, I would have to say that I'm aware of that Canada is quite diverse, and what we might have in Victoria and Vancouver, we have a familiarity with cannabis that I think doesn't exist throughout Canada. And we have what might be referred to more of a cannabis culture, where the culture is you know, normalized. Um, youth here are um, quite familiar with cannabis, as adults are too. But that's not the same all the way across Canada. So I think I would like a flexible model. Um, we already know that even though there will be federal um, regulation, that the provinces will have some um, say in relation to what they would like to create, and that has been the same for alcohol regulation too. So we can see even in Canada where we have different um, ages for uh, drinking alcohol, where it's 18 in some provinces and 19 in other. And so I would assume that provinces will also, um, given their legal mandate, um, will get to decide what the age will be for use of cannabis. And as well, municipalities will continue to have some say, especially in relation to the regulation of space, if there are, and whether they want to have storefront dispensaries or not. So not all of it will be um, determined by federal, uh, a federal regulatory system. But of course, the task force could recommend that the federal government you know, make um, suggestions about what um, what they favor, you know, if they favor a certain age. And so to give you an example, a discussion paper was created and that was online and still online for people to take a look at. And that discussion paper was created by the, the government of Canada. But they raised points to stimulate questions. So you might not agree with the whole discussion paper, but the point was to stimulate questions about the um, age level for possession of cannabis, um, what type of advertising restrictions might there be? Um, should there be a medical cannabis regime alongside a recreational cannabis regime? What would the production system look like? Right now the production system is quite restricted in relation to medical cannabis in terms of licensing and security. Mm -hmm. um, would there be a system of seed to sale? Um, we have dispensaries and mail order. And what will we do about driving under influence? We already have um, federal legislation around driving under influence, but will we consider other models of regulation mm -hmm. around that? So these are all issues that have to be determined, and some are federal, some are provincial, and some are related to municipal regulation. But certainly the federal government can, um, can lend a hand in providing a framework that they feel would be advisable. But what the province and municipalities will do, you know, that's another thing and will be determined um, to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. you know, they have some leeway where uh, some provinces or municipalities may decide that they don't want storefront dispensaries and will, you know, favor a mail-order model. Mm -hmm. Other municipalities like Vancouver and Victoria, considering that they're already up and running, mm -hmm. you know, may continue on in the same path, uh, but would have the security of having, 
you know, federal regulation to help monitor those dispensaries. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to leave it there. system set up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Boyd, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, Dr. Susan Take Boyd. Take care. Dr. Susan Boyd. Federal Task Force on Legalization of Marijuana and a Distinguished Professor at UVic. Finally on the show, uh, UVic's annual United Way campaign is going to kick off this Thursday from uh, 12 to 1 at the University Center. They're hoping to raise $275,000 by the end of the year. I spoke to the uh, campaign chair yesterday, uh, who uh, has a little more to say on that. Jim Forbes, Director of Campus Services and this year's United Way Chair. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, So could you give us a little bit of background just on uh, what the United Way does and what UVic's involvement with them has been? Um, UVic uh, has supported the United Way uh, for many years, um, and what we're doing is... uh, um, on our campaign is, is raising uh, funds uh, on behalf of the university to contribute to the United Way so that they could uh, do their good work in the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what are some of the goals for the campaign this year? Um, our, we've set our goal this year of uh, $275,000. Um, and over the past few years, we've been able to uh, meet, our, meet our goal each year. And so this year we'd like that to, to continue. Um, because we feel it's very important for um, not only institution but for the United Way to have the funds they need to, to be able to do the uh, work uh, that they do in the community. Mm-hmm. And that is um, um, support uh, kids' poverty and uh, um, programs uh, in support of those areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know how long uh, UVic has been involved with the United Way? As long as I can remember, um, mm-hmm. I've been myself directly involved for the past three years, but at least uh, um, I would say over a decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what have you been doing over those last three years? Um, I've I've chaired uh, various committees. Uh, this year, uh, um, it's my honor to be the, the chair of the campaign. Last year, I co-chaired, and, and the year prior to that, uh, mm-hmm. I was the leadership chair for, for University of Victoria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what made you decide to get involved with it? I was asked um, three or four years ago to uh, to be able to step up. I think um, I'm, I have contacts on campus, and and it was a natural fit for me to be able to go back into our community here and and uh, do some good work. Uh, I've always looked for uh, ways to volunteer, and and uh, and when I was asked, I, I jumped at the opportunity. I just think that um, everything that the United Way stands for, and, and the good that it does um, around the city of Victoria and, and here on campus. Uh, um, it, it's a small ask at the end of the day, and, and I've been inspired every single year. I, I meet uh, so many fabulous uh, uh, people that have, 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 have been the be- you know, have benefited from the United Way programs, and it's just so inspiring to, to hear their stories and, and be able to, to contribute with that in, in some way. And, and certainly I, I do that uh, um, you know, at night and on weekends and off the corner of my desk. And, and, and just, just the wins that you get uh, are just, it's, it's just incredibly inspiring to, to see the, the, you know, the, the net effect of, of what those dollars do for people. Mm-hmm. It makes a, just such a great difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you recall any specific stories of you know, how that money has made a difference for people? Um, I think on the United Way website that we have currently, there, there is a story of a, of a current employee here at the university, and it just showed how she was uh, helped along her journey in terms of getting um, her feet back on the ground. 
um, and, uh, and and at every intersection, it would seem it would have seemed that there was a, a program in place to help support her. Um, and 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 as a single mother in this case, uh, she she's now um, um, you know she she she's been a loaned rep for for the United Way program as well. So she's I think she's really lived the the benefit of what the United Way has done to support her and 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 as now um, it's come full full circle. And so she stepped up and she's on committee now and, and helping others uh, uh, behind you know I guess the the path that that she went down. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some of the uh, public events that people can expect over the coming weeks and months? Um, lots of great events. Um, plasma car race is, is, a, is a favorite on October 25th and last year we had a power up the tower event um, which the president uh, led and, and the vice mm -hmm. presidents around campus, the deans became involved and certainly that was a, a, a new event that, that garnered a lot of interest and raised a lot of money for the United Way and then on December 1st we have the, the Yearly Artisans Market which um, the students uh, have, have donated the Michelle Pujol room or um, to be able to, for us to hold that event and so I think the events bring people together, they raise funds, they get people talking, um, it, just, it just leads to other, other um, opportunities within the campaign because you know, at all of those events, you just you just see um, uh, how inspired people are in terms of uh, attending them and, and raising funds on behalf of the United Way. Mm -hmm. uh, and do you have a, a kind of a, a sense of is it mostly a staff run thing, or do students also donate? Like, sort yeah. of, where's the involvement split? So a lot of the base of funds comes from students, or I'm sorry, from staff and faculty, and and the students. Uh, um, participate um, at the events. Um, they certainly have visited the artisans market and purchased uh, um, goods there and, and, and made donations on spot and certainly a lot of the students uh, um, stepped up at, at some of the uh, um, larger events. Um, and I think just, just that general participation. I, I know they want to be involved and, and, and for the university I think we have to find ways to involve them. Um, this year we're also looking for uh, another new event um, um, to, to be able to slot in around uh, the first or second week of November and we're really looking for it to be student-centric in, in the sense of involving students. They're involved but again we're always looking for, for new ways to, to bring students on. That was uh, Jim Forbes there, Director of Campus Services and United Way Chair for this 2016. It launches this Thursday 12 to 1 uh, at University Centre. And that's it for You in the Ring this week. As always, if you have story tips or anything on campus you think students should know about, email spokenword at uvig.ca. For instance, one of our reporters is working on a story about what it's like to be a student renter in Victoria. Uh, so if you're still looking for a place, uh, or if you found something a little unexpected, a little weird, email Miyoko at miyokoradio at gmail.com. You in the Ring is produced by Liz MacArthur. I'm your host, Hugo Wong. Stay tuned for Artscape with Katie Sage and Harold Hijazi. Have yourself a wonderful Tuesday.